Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And thank you so much, Scott. I'm Eamon Javers in again for Kelly Evans today here at CNBC headquarters. And here's what's ahead on The Exchange. The infrastructure bill finally passing in the Senate. If a trillion dollars is going to be spent here, which companies are going to get a piece of all that money? We'll get some stock picks and we'll talk to Senator Angus King about what's going to get built in his state and around the country. Plus, you don't know what you've got until you lose it. A foam shortage is tying up production of furniture. That's foam, not like the Starbucks foam, but foam that goes into furniture and stuffing of all kinds. We'll talk to the CEO of Huntsman in our Out of Stock series. And in rapid fire, Domino's versus delivery, work from home pay cut, and buy now, pay for it later. But let's start with the breaking news of the past hour. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo announcing his resignation and Contessa Brewer has all the details for us. Contessa, over to you. Hi there, Amy. Cuomo's resignation will take effect in two weeks to allow for this transition of power. But the announcement was an abrupt about face. His personal attorney, Rita Glavin, was walking her way through a report, uh, spending more than 45 minutes. This report from the attorney general had accused Governor Andrew Cuomo of sexual harassment, of groping, of bullying, toxic workplace culture, and the complaints of 11 women of varying degrees of seriousness. Here, the attorney Glavin explained, excused, and set aside those complaints. New York governor then came after her, followed up. He apologized. He says for sure he offended all 11 women. But he says, look, it was generation and cultural norms that shifted without him knowing it. And just when you thought he was digging in for the long defense, he turned around and announced his resignation. Here's his rationale. The state assembly yesterday outlined weeks of process that will then lead to months of litigation. Time and money that government should spend managing COVID, guarding against the Delta variant, reopening upstate, fighting gun violence, and saving New York City. All that time would be wasted. So he says he loves the state and the best way to show his love is to step aside. New York will get its first female governor in Kathy Hochul, the lieutenant governor who has been serving on Cuomo's team since 2014. Of course, the resignation may avoid more airing of dirty laundry by the state assembly in uh, impeachment efforts. But we know a criminal investigation is underway in Albany County and the governor's resignation shouldn't have an impact on that. Amen. And Contessa, as you say, we're going to see the first female governor here in Kathy Hochul. What has she had to say uh, about all of this? Have we heard from her today or over the course of the past week? Yeah, it's a great question. She released a statement very quickly after the governor spoke, and, and she says it is the right thing to do and in the best interest of New Yorkers, quote, as someone who has served at all levels of government and is next in the line of succession, 
I am prepared to lead as New York State's 57th governor. She had distanced herself from the governor. She has not been seen a lot with him in public. And after the attorney general, Letitia James, released her report that outlined all these various ways that Cuomo and his team, I should say, and his team were guilty of not only um, this pervasive culture of sexual harassment, a toxic bullying culture, but they said also had committed um, illegally an attempt to retaliate against those who came forward. Kathy Hochul released a statement um, decrying that behavior and denouncing it. Uh, There were some reports that she had begun to gather a team around her to consider a run for governor and and to make her way into preparation for this particular role, regardless of what the governor did. But now he steps aside. She will remain the governor until 2022, the midterms there, Eamon. Contessa, thank you so much. Kathy Hochul there, next in line of succession, also maybe next in the hot seat, given the political turmoil that we have seen in New York State over the past couple of years. Let's turn now to the other big developing story at this hour. The Senate passing the trillion-dollar bipartisan infrastructure bill. Elon Moy is in Washington with the latest on that big package moving the Senate. Elon. Well, Eamon, that bipartisan infrastructure bill has finally passed the Senate after months of negotiations and several near-death experiences. In the end, though, the results were clear. The bill passed 69 to 30. Nineteen Republicans supported it. And Vice President Kamala Harris presided over the final vote. Now, both parties are calling this a historic investment, not just in roads and bridges, but also in broadband, transit and water as well. According to an analysis by Moody's, the bill would create 650,000 jobs by its peak impact in the middle of the decade and boost GDP to 2.9 percent in 2023. Moody's is forecasting 2.3 percent growth that year without the impact of the bill. Now, the next step is for the House to take up this legislation. Members of the Bipartisan Problem Solvers Caucus are urging Speaker Nancy Pelosi to bring it up ASAP. In a letter to leadership, they say, after years of waiting, we cannot afford unnecessary delays to finally deliver on a physical infrastructure package. But Pelosi has said that she will not start work until the Senate sends over the $3.5 trillion spending package that includes the rest of Democrats' agenda. In just the past few minutes, the Senate did vote to start debate on it. The tally for that, Amen, was 50 to 49. So right along party lines. Back to you. A squeaker there. Elon, thanks so much. Stay right there. We're going to come right back to you after we talk about which stocks now stand to benefit from this infrastructure bill. Our next guest says a new, a new spending is a big boost for some specific companies. And the smaller the industry, the larger the impact will be with names like Caterpillar, American Tower, Cisco, Blink and ChargePoint among those those that could benefit the most. So let's bring in Dan Clifton. He is the head of policy research at Strategus Research Partners. Dan, thank you so much for being here. I've been watching Bob Pisani all morning on our air, and he yes. says, you know, this was priced into the market, right? The market knew this infrastructure bill was coming. We knew it had the votes to pass. Now it passes. But you're saying there are still specific companies that can benefit from all that spending. How is that possible? Yeah, I would disagree with the analysis that this is all priced in. You know, you had a big rise in these stocks as the Democrats won the Georgia election in January. They went up for about two months and they've really been underperforming since the month of March, because, as you know, and you've covered it so well, there's been a lot of wrangling over whether this bill is going to pass, how it's tied to the larger bill. And so now you're just starting to see the momentum build into the stocks. And I'll tell you, Eamon, 
We've done an infrastructure bill in 2009, 2012, and 2015, and you usually get a pop around the bill passing and then a pop as investors begin to reprice the earnings impact as that new spending starts to take effect. That is a very critical point because if you look at the stocks that are levered up to this spending, they usually outperform over the next six to eight months after the bill passes into law. And we're really just at the beginning of that process itself. And as you know, this bill is larger than our traditional infrastructure bills that we did in 2012 and 2015. So this is likely going to have a bigger impact. It's really going to have a bigger impact in some of these smaller industries. So give us some names. Traditional highway spending that Bob's been talking about. Yeah, time. give us some names. Who do you think is really going to benefit here? Yeah, sure. If you go through highways, we like Marietta, uh, Martin Marietta, MLM. You know, that's a traditional highway spend. But as you get deeper into the bill, you've got water. We're going to do $55 billion of incremental spending on water. Ticker symbol like Aqua is a good name uh, to think about that will benefit from that, as well as Mueller water products as we start to think about lead pipes. Then you think about the charging stations that are in here for electric vehicles, ChargePoint, Blink, EVgo, they're going to be beneficiaries of this. Then you think about electric buses, uh, a company like uh, uh, Fuel Cell Technology or Plug. Uh, he was on CNBC yesterday, the CEO of that company, talking about how big this bill is going to be uh, for them. And then you got broadband. You, you mentioned Cisco before. They're going to benefit maybe the cable providers, maybe the, the uh, tower operators that do 5G. I think there's going to be enough of this money to go around, and you're going to hear that. The state highway transportation officials are just actually sitting there thinking, wow, we're going to get all this money if the bill passes. And as you know, we may still be another month or two away from that bill passing. But this is a pretty historic investment for the companies that are are going to benefit from this new spending. Dan, how do you look at this differentially across the different sectors, right? I mean, you're talking about sort of traditional highways being built and also electric charging stations and whatnot. Do you see a competitive advantage here for one sector over the other? Does electric benefit more than the traditional cement guys in the building industries? Who's the big winner here sector-wise? Absolutely. Listen, I, I think the highway cement names, the traditional what we call highway infrastructure names, I think they're going to benefit. But look at the way this way steel stocks have been performing. Cleveland Cliffs and uh, Newcore Steel, the market is starting to price in that increased demand for them. So they're still going to benefit. I don't want to take anything away from them. But we're going to do something new this time. Even. We're going to do grid spending. We're going to actually upgrade the U.S. electrical grid to be able to incorporate a lot of this electrification. So companies like Eaton will be beneficiary of that or a company like uh, Quanta Services, ticker PWR. They are going to be able to get the contract work to upgrade these types of power systems in the electrical grid. And that is new spending. And that's why we think that they're probably going to be a larger beneficiary of them than, say, the traditional construction engineering names that usually benefit around a highway infrastructure bill. All right. Well, a lot of names there, a lot to consider. Dan Clifton there arguing this money is not yet priced into the market, so there might be some opportunities there. Dan, thank you very much for that. Thank My you, next Amy. guest was a key negotiator in the room when the Senate passed the infrastructure bill. Let's welcome in Senator Angus King from Maine and welcome back our own Elon Moy. Senator King, thank you so much for being here. Fascinated to get your insights on this. Elon Moy has been covering all of this for us down on Capitol Hill. I know, I know she has a question for you. Go ahead, Elon. Sure. Go ahead, Elon. Well, thanks, Eamon, and thanks, 
Thank you, Senator King. So I was hoping that you could help us actually sort of dive into some of the substance of this bill, um, because we've talked a lot about the trillion dollars that's going to be spent. We've talked a lot about the sectors, the wide variety of sectors that are going to be seeing some of that money flow. How long do you think before we see an economic impact from all of this money? Do you think it's something that's going to be short term felt immediately or are you really looking at this as a longer term investment? I think it's a longer-term investment. It's important to realize the trillion dollars people are talking about is over five years. And I think it will be accelerating as the, as the bill is implemented over the next uh, couple of years. But uh, I want to go back to one of the comments earlier. When you're talking about a six-tenths improvement in GDP, which is what uh, was predicted just because of this bill, that's a big deal in itself. That's productivity. That's an advance of the entire economy. This is a huge deal. This is really the biggest infrastructure, uh, hard infrastructure project since the interstate highway system in the 50s. And and the, the piece that I've been most involved with is broadband. We can talk about that, but that's transformational, particularly in rural areas. Well, I do want to talk about that because, you know, as this takes time to sort of see through the economy and for states and local governments to get some of this money, in the broadband piece in particular, students are going back to school and so many of them still do not have access to the Internet. Will this plan have enough funding to guarantee that every American really does have the opportunity to connect to broadband? We're pretty close to that point. Yeah, it's hard to tell, but the, the estimates I've heard are 50 billion nationwide should do it, should connect everyone. And between this bill plus the bill that was passed in March that had 10 billion in it, we're above that number. So uh, I can't say it's going to happen tomorrow or next week. I mean, this is a, you know, this is a major uh, infrastructure investment and a major construction project. Uh, but yeah, that's the idea is to connect everyone, whether it's seniors for telehealth, students for, uh, for connecting to school or just able to do their homework in a rural area. And finally, I think this is transformational for rural areas and small towns because people will be able to work from home. Uh, they'll be able to work for any company in the country remotely, which they couldn't do without a decent connection in these rural areas, whether it's in Maine or Arkansas or Oklahoma or Montana. This is, I think, the most transformational piece of this bill. I view the broadband piece as the equivalent of the interstate highway investment in the 50s. Well, the employers might have something to say about whether or not they can work anywhere around the country. And we're going to talk about that aspect of this debate a little bit later in this broadcast. But Senator King, so much of this debate has been about on the 30,000 foot level of how much has been spent. It's a trillion dollars. There's some big numbers here. But I wonder where the rubber meets the road in your state of Maine. What's the biggest project that you think is actually going to get funded as a result of this bill? And what's that going to mean for the economy in your state? Well, it, no, I can give you a quick breakdown. It's about $1.2 billion to Maine for highways, $225 million for, uh, for bridges, uh, and then $300 million for broadband. So that's the breakdown. How is that going to affect employment and productivity? I don't, I don't think there's much doubt that it will. I mean, uh, in, in infrastructure investments are what drives the underlying economy. Your, your economists will confirm that. And whether it's more efficient transportation, whether it's transit, uh, broadband, and then, of course, there are pieces for EV uh, uh, deployment, increasing the capacity of the grid so we can move more in the way of renewables. All of that's going to have a direct. I can't say that a factory X will move to Westbrook because of this bill, but I think we're going to see overall growth in our economy in Maine, and that's 
you know, that's the, those are the people that hired me. So uh, that's why I'm so happy about it. We're still going to have to see this pass in the House of Representatives. And there's some there's some weirdness over there because you've got moderates, moderate Democrats saying, look, let's vote on this right away. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi has said, you know what, I don't want to vote on this bill until we see the even bigger so-called soft or human infrastructure bill of three plus trillion passed by the Senate and come over to the House. She wants to do both of those as a package deal and sort of putting pressure on you guys in the Senate to get that deal done, too. And you've started that process now. My question to you, though, is do you think Nancy Pelosi is bluffing about that? Ultimately, if she can only get this bill that you guys just passed this morning, do you think she and the House Democrats will take it? Uh, you know, I think that's a judgment that she's going to have to make. I don't want to second guess her. My understanding is she's made these statements about linking the two, but there there's some escape hatches. My own view is yeah. this bill is itself is such a big deal and so important for the country. I'd like to get it to the president's desk as soon as possible. But the, the other piece is important, too. Remember, I talked about the interstate highway system in the 50s. The other big economic driver of the 50s, 60s and 70s was the GI Bill. And the next bill that we're talking about is is similar to that in terms of supporting people in community colleges, pre-K education. That's the other half of this. So I understand where the speaker is coming from. On the other hand, uh, this is such a good deal. I I don't like things lying around uh, where they can uh, languish. Uh, I'd like to see this one get to the president's desk. So some escape hatches in what the Speaker of the House is saying, but I can see why you don't necessarily want to get crosswise with her. Thank you so much, (laughs) Senator Angus King. Really appreciate you being here and sharing your insight and Elon Moy uh, for your reporting as well. Thank you to both of you. Coming up, the largest cannabis company in the country will speak with the executive chairman of Curaleaf about the business, earnings, the future, and whether we're going to legalize it at the national level. Plus, Coinbase is reporting earnings after the bell. We'll tell you what to expect and look at the potential regulatory threats from Capitol Hill. The exchange is back in a moment. Don't go anywhere. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. And welcome back, everybody. Curaleaf, the largest cannabis company in the country, reporting earnings mostly in line with expectations. But it's been a bumpy ride for the stock, 
up less than 1% on the year and more than 30% off its 52-week high. With a federal legalization bill formally introduced in the Senate last month, is it time now to bet on the cannabis growth story in the future? Joining me now in a first on CNBC interview is Boris Jordan, the executive chairman of Leaf. Boris, thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate your time and expertise. I'll tell you what, I spent uh, a couple of years ago a full day in a marijuana dispensary uh, where they were talking about how this business is going to grow over time. And it was a powerful story several years ago in terms of the growth of this industry. But the big problem they had in that dispensary that I was at uh, was how to handle the cash because the banks wouldn't take their money. The federal ban kept in place this awkward situation where states say it's legal, you can engage in state-level business transactions, but at the federal level, you can't access the banking system. Is that a problem for you? And how do you see that resolving itself in the years to come? Well, I think it's a, well, good to be here. I, I think it's a problem for everyone in the industry. Um, the fact that, you know, Canadian marijuana companies, Colombian marijuana companies, you know, European marijuana companies can bank in the U.S., trade in our exchanges, but homegrown U.S. businesses like Cureleaf cannot. And it's the most outrageous thing I've ever seen in business for 30 years. But, um, you know, obviously Cureleaf being the largest cannabis company in the world does have access to banking, but it's, we bank at very small uh, mom and pop banks around the country. You know, some of our banks have less capital that we hold deposits in those banks um, because the large money center banks are not allowed to bank our sector. We're not allowed to trade on U.S. exchanges. A lot of investors in the U.S. cannot access our share price. We trade in Canada. And you mentioned that our share price is down 30 percent. Well, I think that's a disappointment in the Democrats um, and Republicans because this is a very bipartisan issue that they have not been able to pass safe banking. And, you know, one talks about social justice issues and getting a lot of these uh, communities that have been very harmed by the war on drugs, which we support tremendously. But how can they open businesses? How can they do if they can't even open up a bank account, if they can't get basic banking services or loans? So what are you going to do about that? It's very important. What are we you going to do about to get- that? I mean, you're, you're talking about, uh, in our notes with our producer here, you said you see New Jersey, Connecticut, and New York State, I think, as an $8 billion opportunity going forward. That's a lot of money. If you have to ship that around in trucks, you know, physical pallets of cash driving up and down I-95 in New Jersey, I mean, you're talking about a huge opportunity for, uh, you know, the Sopranos crime family or other bad guys to go after that money. It's not safe to have that amount it's of cash moving safe. around the country. And, and that's why so the what do you do? Is, that's what... That's why the law is called the Safe Banking Act. And um, it does have support. But at the moment, uh, Senator Schumer has made a decision that he wants to get a more comprehensive bill, which we also support, obviously. Um, and he wants to try to get, you know, interstate commerce. He wants to get cannabis um, removed from the uh, 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 list of uh, prohibited prohibited uh, drugs. Um, he wants to get a, a lot of different things done. Well, we think that there should be, you know, a first step. And the first step is to make it safe. For those companies and the people that work, you have to understand, you know, Cureleaf alone has over, you know, 6,000 employees. We're hiring 2,000 employees a year. The industry has now hired almost 350,000 employees in the last three years. And a lot of our employees can't open bank accounts for basic banking services. So this is now affecting not only big companies, but this is affecting everyday Americans who are trying to get um, access to banking services that work for this very big industry. And so we are hopeful that the government will move in the direction of approving 
the Safe Banking Act. I want to ask you a little bit about COVID, because just about every CEO that we have on these days, we're asking about the Delta variant and how the spike in cases is impacting their business, their ability to reopen. But you're in an unusual position because you sell a product that can be bad, unhealthy for the lungs. I'm wondering how your customers have responded uh, to this increase in cases around the country and whether or not there are health concerns uh, about lungs and COVID uh, and marijuana. So anything one smokes is not necessarily a good thing. But the difference between tobacco and cannabis, and this is an absolute fact, is that cannabis doesn't have any kind of cancer side effects or things that can significantly damage one's health. But generally speaking, smoking is not a good thing. So, you know, most of the products that we sell are more than 50 percent are non-smokable cannabis products, whether it be um, edibles, whether it be tinctures, whether it be drinks and other products as the sector is developing. And so, in fact, during COVID, we've had a boom in the industry because particularly in the older communities, people have come returned to cannabis to deal with anxiety, to deal with sleep and other issues where they don't want to turn to pharmaceutical drugs like opiates or other drugs, which have very big synthetic compositions to it. And so cannabis has become a go-to product for a lot of people in the community to deal with a lot of those issues. Well, that's something I didn't think I would learn today, that COVID has been good for the cannabis business. Uh, fascinating insight there. Thanks so much, Boris Jordan, for joining us on The Exchange. And coming up, Hacking Main Street, a new survey shows how prepared small businesses are for a cyber attack, and the results may surprise you. Plus, our Out of Stock series continues with a closer look at the issues facing the global supply chain. Today, we're talking about the fallout from the foam shortage. Yes, a foam shortage. The exchange is coming right back after this. You don't want to miss this very soft segment. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. And welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a quick check on the markets and some movers with Dom Chu. Dom, what's going on out there? All right, so we have record highs in the market so far today. Aim in for the Dow Industrials. We'll put a yellow star, gold star there, and the S&P 500. Both of them hit earlier in the session. We're up about a half of 1% for the Dow Industrials, 35,267. The S&P 500, 4439, the last trade there. The Nasdaq underperforming today off about one-third of 1%, 58 points to the downside. Now take a look at the interest rate complex, specifically 10-year Treasury note yields. We continue to tick higher, just a hair below 1.35% right now. As a result, many of the banks are in focus. ETFs that track them, like the regional bank ETF of 1%, and then Citigroup and Bank of America, two larger money center banks, up between 2 and 3% in trading today. So yes, remember, we got just about as low as about 1.13% on that 10-year yield as of late back up to 1.35. Now, Eamon, back over to you. Dom, thanks for that. And now over to Christina Partsinevelos for a CNBC News update. Christina, what's going on? Hi, Eamon. Here is what is happening at this hour. So we've got reactions streaming in to New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's decision to resign. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio says it was past time for Cuomo to step down. Karen Hinton, one of Cuomo's accusers, says Cuomo's fall was entirely of his own making. 
A new poll finds more than 70% of Americans have high trust in their doctors, nurses, and pharmacists. Researchers say the trust could become important in efforts to convince more people to get vaccinated for COVID. On the news, you'll hear from nurses fighting big COVID outbreaks in Missouri and how some of their patients are expressing regret for not getting their shots. That's tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. In Thailand, police and demonstrators clashing for the second time in four days. People are protesting slow vaccination efforts and a lack of movement towards political reform. There's the news. I'll send it back to you. Christina, thanks so much. Coming up, can Coinbase deliver for investors the buy now, pay later debt dilemma? And if you work from home, should you make less? Well, Google thinks so. That's all coming up ahead in rapid fire. We're back in two minutes. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It's time for Rapid Fire. Here to help break down the headlines, Bob Pisani, Kate Rooney, and Todd Gordon. He's the founder of Inside Edge Capital and a CNBC contributor. Thank you to all of you. First, Coinbase is set to report after the bell, and the bar is high. The stock is down about 4% going into the print. Wall Street is expecting strong results driven by Bitcoin's meteoric rise to an all-time high of $60,000. But analysts are actually watching for that guidance. Kate, what is on investors' radar here? Guidance is huge, Eamon. This is only Coinbase's second quarterly report as a public company. So it's pretty new to see some of these results. It's really interesting to see sort of the correlation between Bitcoin trading and volatility and Coinbase's performance. And as you mentioned, bar is pretty high. Coinbase had tripled revenue in the first quarter. And uh, we are looking at Bitcoin. It topped 60,000 or got around that level in the second quarter. So analysts I've been talking to are assuming that, yes, it was still a good quarter. That's that 60,000 level sort of picking up the slack for a quieter period at the end of the quarter. But it's all about guidance for what's going on right now. Bitcoin had been stuck at that sort of $30,000 level until this week, pretty much. Um, And then they're also looking for sort of that breakdown of institutional versus retail trading. You can often guess some of the trading volume without seeing the actual results from a, a company like Coinbase. What they're really looking for, what analysts cannot see, is how much of that is retail traders versus some of the bigger Wall Street firms. That's a big one. They're looking at user numbers as well. The other big one is the percentage of global assets that Coinbase has. So it was about 11 percent in the uh, first quarter in terms of how much of the global crypto market cap is actually under custody at Coinbase. Any decrease in that could show a little bit more competition. We've got the likes of PayPal, Venmo, Robinhood also in this space. So competition is a big theme going into this. So, Todd, we've got a couple of hours here before we get the actual number. How do you trade this through the rest of the afternoon? Uh, I mean, I'm not trading it. I don't own it. I was here on CNBC on IPO day and I was bearish. Uh, we've sold off down to 200. Uh, I'm not bearish on the space. I'm bearish on the company and specifically the spreads. Right. I'm coming from the old FX days. If you can remember way back when the foreign exchange platforms came on and the bid ask spreads were so wide, you could drive a truck through them. Um, this is kind of the same situation. They're doing 90% of the revenues through the transactional volume and 5 to 10% of the subscription side. So I put a post on Twitter, uh, Eamon, a while back. Uh, I was doing a $10,000, uh, F, uh, excuse me, $10,000 crypto transaction and it cost 3% uh, hmm. to fill. They would sell you below the bid and they put a $150 cost on top of that. Traders aren't going to stand for that. There's just way too much competition um, out there. And if you look at uh, coin market cap, this judges the, the exchanges that do the revenue, uh, the, the, the most volume in a 24 hour basis right now. Coinbase is only 15th on that global list. 
as Kate just said. So there's too much competition. Spreads are too wide. It's it's a business that invites a lot of competition. Uh, I like the crypto space. I hold crypto in my portfolio. Uh, one upside, maybe I see uh, opportunities in decentralized finance partnerships, which is a sort of a rapidly growing sector in cryptos. But there's way too many opportunities for people to come in and squeeze that bid-ass spread. Well, let's ask Bob. You're over on the floor, Bob. What are they saying over there? Well, the, I, in general, opinions are split on Bitcoin. Some are big fans, some are not. I'm not such a big fan of Bitcoin, but I am a big fan of blockchain, big fan of, big fan of decentralized finance. So I'm rooting for, for Coinbase on that front. There's two obvious risks here. One is trading. They get most of their money from trading. If trading drops off, they're going to have a problem. I know they're trying to spread out uh, their, their uh, revenue base, but that's a big issue. The second is I think people are greatly underestimating the regulatory risk. Listen to Gary Gensler. Listen to what he's saying. There is a whole world of new regulations coming down, not only on Bitcoin, but on initial coin offerings. Gensler has made it clear he thinks most initial coin offerings are indeed securities, and there's a lot of unregistered securities out there, essentially. So I think you're going to hear a lot from the SEC in the next several months that's going to impact Coinbase. All right, next topic, the booming buy now, pay later trend could create a credit conundrum. Last year, the volume e-commerce payments using buy now, pay later totaled $19 billion, more than doubling from the amount that was spent back in 2019, according to World Pay Data. But Fitch Ratings is ringing an alarm bell about the sector, saying its debt performance reporting is opaque, quote unquote, and could increase default risks for consumers and BNPL players. So the question for you, Kate, is where do we see all this play out? I worry a little bit as I look at this particular industry about people getting taken advantage of and getting into situations that they don't know how to get out of. Yeah, absolutely. Eamon, one of the things that analysts worry about is something called stacking debt. So the idea of using your credit card to pay for something like an installment loan. And in a lot of cases, they don't necessarily take a FICO score, for example, that might not be sort of the traditional credit reporting. Fintechs would argue that that's often more reliable. They might have your cash uh, sort of your inflows, your balance sheet as a consumer, and they say that FICO scores can often misrepresent some consumers. While that's definitely the case, in some cases, it might not accurately represent how much risk somebody's taking on. And it is now, they're everywhere. These buy now, pay later things are ubiquitous. You see them for things that are, you know, in the low $100 versus a Peloton, for example. So you can really get them anywhere. I think it's easy for people to get caught up and maybe not realize how many of these sort of subscription-type buy now, pay later services are out there. But it is a huge risk and something that every time one of these deals is announced, you at Square and Afterpay most recently that analysts are worried about. Todd, you were bullish. Uh, you were bearish on topic one. Are you bullish on topic two? I'm near term bullish, Damon, long term yeah. cautious. Like it's a it's a hot space. Square and PayPal and all there's Kate just said moving in. It reduces the reliance on sort of the finicky credit score system. and allows, let's say, inexperienced consumers to avoid uh, compounding interest on credit cards they don't understand. It gives them access to, to buying goods. But um, the, as Kay said, the issue is they're not pulling credit scores. And with people, what happens is those inexperienced consumers will stack. They'll, they'll, they'll pay, you know, pay their installment with their credit card. And we're right back to where we started. And if just look at some stats, U.S. household consumer debt as a percent of disposable income just hit a new low of 4.77%. I think that's the second lowest since 92 when it was 4.6. That was 1992. Well, credit card debt has hit a new high. It's off the highs. U.S. Uh, credit card debt was at $928 billion. It's backed off to $787 billion. But still, what that means, those two stats, is people are not servicing the debt. 
as that first stat is dropping while consumer debt is going up, I don't see how unexperienced young uh, consumers are going to have the, the financial maturity to service that debt properly, not compound the issue. True, we are a consumer-driven economy, but uh, for young people trying to financially get their house in order, uh, I just don't see how this ends Todd. up well, and it doesn't any favors. Yeah, thank you for that. Let's move to topic three real quick. And there's an outrage factor with this one, Bob, because as the debate over remote work continues, Google is reportedly making a move that's raising some eyebrows. According to Reuters, the company is rolling out an internal pay calculator. Employees can see how their choice to work from home or move away from the office can affect their wages. In practice, this calculator may unfairly penalize workers who just happen to have long commutes. Reuters is reporting that some dramatic pay cuts, some as high as 25 percent, could be in the offing here. Bob, traditionally, we thought of the, the salary that you get is pay for the job that you do, not where you live. Is this the right way to go? And is this what we're going to be seeing from companies in the future? This argument puzzles me, Eamon, because pay has never been location agnostic. You traditionally would get paid more to work in New York than working in Arkansas because the cost of living uh, is higher. And now but companies pay hasn't have pointed been, this fact out. But pay hasn't but, been expense agnostic, right? I mean, if you choose to have four children and have a lot of expenses, like uh, some people no. here in this room, uh, then that's one no. thing. If you choose to have no children and have low expenses, that's another thing. The company doesn't differentiate based on what your expenses are, do they, Bob? No, not expenses, but they will pay you more if you're living in New York City than if you're living actually in Arkansas, for example. And now the companies have pointed this out, and there's a bit of a brouhaha, because some people have decided to live elsewhere, and it is cheaper to live somewhere else. So they might be getting 15% savings from living in Arkansas, and they want to keep that perk, and that's the point, Eamon. They don't want to lose that value. They figured out a way to do a little bit better by going to a less expensive place, perhaps, and they want to keep it. Now, this is a perfectly reasonable discussion to have. Should companies be forced to pay equally everybody no matter where you are? And maybe that's what that should be happening. But that's not historically what has been happening. I'm just, just saying I'm just pointing out that you can do that. Let's have that debate. But don't don't act like, you know, it's an outrage if Google points out that people will get paid different uh, parts uh, dif differently in different parts of the country. Just and when the workers finally had a chance to get a little something they should for be themselves, paid less. right? Finally, uh, let's go to you, Todd, for a quick thought on this. It is a fee fight between Domino's and food delivery chain apps. The pizza chain is giving away $50 million worth of free food, free food to random customers in a pr program called Surprise Freeze. It's a, an effort to take on surprise fees that Domino's says third-party delivery platforms like DoorDash and Uber Eats charge users. This, as CEO Richard Allison admitted, that the biggest competition over the long term for us in the delivery uh, is that third-party aggregator channel. So, Todd, will you be ordering from Domino's as a result of this? And what do you think about sort of getting the middleman out of this pizza supply chain business? Oh, I'm kind of torn on this. I love the convenience of having DoorDash, you know, yeah. the food deliveries right there and sort of an aggregator of all the, the restaurants we can go to. We're here in Saratoga Springs, so we have a lot of really local good restaurants, though Domino's is good. I think it's easy for these companies to come in and, and, and bring their own driver workforce and reduce the, the fees. You really look at, it's kind of like that Coinbase discussion. You look at what you're really paying for, for someone to come bring your food to you. It's 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 a space that invites competition. Uh, there's plenty of people out there who are embracing the Uber and Lyft lifestyle. They don't mind working after hours with the new time that they have at home. Uh, I think it's a business model that the individual restaurants can compete against very well. So uh, I like it. And Domino's, you look at a DPZ chart over the last 15 years, it's unbelievable what this company's done. Uh, so I think they're 
they're kind of going out ahead. I like where they're headed with this. Look, pizza basically sells itself, right? Thanks to all of you, Bob Pisani, Kate Rooney, and Todd Gordon. Okay. Bob, even though I disagreed with you on the Google thing. Now, markets are heading higher today. Those infrastructure and material stocks getting a boost. But Smile Direct investors not smiling today. All the big movers are coming up right next. And welcome back to The Exchange. Markets are mixed right now with the Dow and the S&P hitting all-time highs earlier in the day. The Nasdaq, though, losing some of its early morning gains here. Here are some of the movers at this hour, though. The steel and commodity stocks seeing a nice move higher on the back of that infrastructure bill passage in the Senate. Nucor, U.S. Steel, Steel Dynamic, and Metal, all among the biggest winners today. Smile Direct Club plunging after the company said an April cyber, an April cyber attack and the lingering effects of the pandemic caused it to fall short of earnings expectations. On the flip side, though, shares of Fisker soaring today after Morgan Stanley initiated the company with an overweight with a price of $40. That's their target. That's a 166% upside. Analyst Adam Jonas expects Fisker to start production of its vehicles by its previous target, unlike some competitors who have delayed their timelines. And coming up, the next installment in our out-of-stock series on things you just can't seem to find enough of right now, even though you may be sitting on it. Foam for couch cushions is in short supply, believe it or not. The CEO of Huntsman joins us right after this break. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to The Exchange. Time for out-of-stock series on products you just can't find. Today, we're talking about foam. It is used in everything from cars to insulation. And when it's in short supply, the effects ripple through supply chains everywhere. Following severe winter weather in February, many chemical production facilities shut down, causing delays in auto manufacturing, furniture production, and home building. So joining me now is one of the largest chemical manufacturers of insulation foam, Huntsman Corp president and CEO, Peter Huntsman. Peter, thank you so much for being here. I mean, the jokes sort of almost write themselves here, right? Everybody spends a year and a half working from home, sitting on the couch. They're going to wear out the foam. They're going to need some more insulation. Uh, but tell us what's really going on in the supply chain of yours. Well, the, the, I believe that the, uh, first of all, thank you very much for having me on. The, the, the supply chain, I believe, before the pandemic was quite tight and it's, it's very well balanced. So anything from the closure of the L.A. port to uh, a tight supply of raw materials to a facility that is uh, producing your major raw materials being slowed down because they can't get enough workers. Any one of these things, we have a, a supply chain that's running at 98% efficiency or effectiveness. Any one of these things is going to cause a literally a, a constraint on global trade. And that's that's largely what we're seeing right now. We're is that seeing something a that you, bit of light at the end of the tunnel, but not much. Is that something that you guys are seeing and the rest of sort of corporate America in general is seeing? I mean, everybody went to this just-in-time streamlined model where you don't keep anything in stock for any length of time because you want to have the point of sale be as quick as possible. Did we learn in the production in, during the course of the pandemic that we moved too far in that direction? And do you think we're going to see maybe some kind of permanent change in terms of just-in-time as we come out the back end of this? Perhaps we will, but these are going to be multi-year fixes. You don't fix the congestion that's taking place in the port of Los Angeles overnight. You don't all of a sudden build a new fleet of, of containers and carriers. You don't relocate manufacturing. The, the facilities like ours, it'll take five to seven years to build. That We're already running at capacity before COVID. And now you look at things like the Green New Deal and, and uh, this infrastructure spending, uh, where there's going to be an enormous amount of new demand, new opportunities and so forth that will be coming in. 
that I think will also serve as both. Well, maybe it'll serve as something that will cause some congestion, but at the same time, tremendous opportunity as well. How much of the problem is on the demand side? You talk about infrastructure and the spending there offsetting the demand a little bit or increasing the demand a little bit. But aren't we going to see a demand slowdown again on the backside of the pandemic as some of these situations resolve themselves and the burst of spending on consumer products and things that we saw begins to fade away? I think in certain areas like like home furniture, uh, which isn't a particularly big market for us. Other areas like automotive. So you think of all the electric vehicles. We do all the seedings for uh, Tesla that's coming out of China and a lot of uh, European and automotive uh, manufacturers here in North America. But our biggest single area, our biggest single area for growth for us is the spray foam. So as people take that cheap pink stuff out of their attics and they replace it with a polyurethane spray foam, it's going to have much better characteristics uh, and, and, and energy saving characteristics and yeah. so forth. We're seeing 10 to 15 percent growth in this area of spray foam, which is largely the same chemistry that's going into home uh, furniture. Peter, we're going to have to end it there. Thanks so much to you and best of luck managing all this. Thanks to Peter Huntsman there. Well, thank you. Uh, now, there may be no greater threat to businesses right now than the threat of a cyber attack. But a shockingly low number of small business owners say they have a plan in case of an attack. That's coming up next. Welcome back. One of the biggest issues facing businesses of all sizes is the growth of cyber attacks. So how prepared are businesses for this growing threat? Well, small business owners are not really uh, worrying about the increasing risk of all this. But, Kate, uh, you're here to tell us about what's going on here with these small business folks. They're in a real world of hurt here, aren't they? Yeah, Eamon, well, you said it. These small business owners are not really worrying too much, it seems, right now about the increasing risk of these cybersecurity threats to their business, but they probably should be, as those small business owners are low-hanging fruit for cyber criminals. More than half of small businesses in our CNBC Momentum poll said that they were not concerned about their business being a victim of a cyber attack in the next 12 months, and less than a quarter say that they're spending more on cybersecurity than they were just a year ago. They may also have some false confidence here. 59% of small business owners said they were confident that they'd be able to resolve an attack on their business quickly. Yet, Eamon, only 28% said they actually had a set plan established to respond to such an attack. Just over a quarter of business owners said they have cybersecurity insurance. Interestingly enough, younger small business owners under the age of 35 were more likely to both say they had cyber insurance and were increasing investment in cybersecurity compared to a year ago. Now, overall confidence held steady this quarter at 45 out of about 100. Right now, 66% of small business owners said that they can survive for more than a year under current business conditions. That's unchanged from last quarter. More than a third say business conditions are good. That is slightly higher than we saw last quarter. Eamon, back over to you. Kate, thank you so much for that. And you don't want to miss CNBC's Small Business Playbook tomorrow featuring a star-studded lineup designed to give you the tools and knowledge to make the most of the economic recovery. You can register to attend at cnbcevents.com slash smallbusiness. That does it for the exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Hey there, I'm Brad. I'm about to win the Tuesday Night Bowling League Championship. I'm also a highway worker for the Ohio Department of Transportation. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I can bowl the winning strike with my buddies. Remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down. 